Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hey, Fintech Beat folks, Amaya Scarity back again, this time to take a little walk down memory lane with an old friend, Rick Bookstaber. As listeners know, I'm a partner at QED Investors, where my job is to invest in high-risk startup enterprises in the hopes that they can become the next generation of iconic financial services firms. But when I started thinking seriously about risk in my career, that word had a whole different meaning. You see, I joined Treasury in January of 2009 at the heights of the financial crisis. 18 months later, I was asked to become the first staffer to support the Financial Stability Oversight Council. For listeners who don't follow the ins and outs of financial regulation in the United States, this council, often called the FSOC, was designed to be a kind of justice league of financial regulators, tasked with working together to prevent the types of financial blowups that we had just lived through. I was lucky at that time to meet Rick Bookstaber. Rick knows a lot about risk, and specifically about the types of risks that I was trying to build a team to analyze. Rick started his career as a risk executive at Morgan Stanley in the 80s, eventually rising to be the chief risk officer at Solomon Brothers in the 90s, then Bridgewater in the 2000s. He's the author of two books, A Demon of Our Own Design, written in the run-up to the great financial crisis, and The End of Theory, about the failures of traditional economics to handle the nonlinearities of a financial crisis. When I met Rick, he was serving as an advisor to the SEC chairwoman, Mary Shapiro. And he and I both thought he was the perfect person to help lay out the foundation for the analysis of financial stability in the U.S. government. I'm really proud of the work that we did then. But most importantly, Rick gave me a great foundation for thinking about what we could know and what we couldn't, what was likely to be important and what was not. Today is not a typical interview because I've had a lot of these conversations with Rick going back to our time together at Treasury. So instead, I want to ask the questions that I'm wrestling with and hearing in financial markets. So this is a live fire view of what a great pleasure it is to sit with and learn from Rick Bookstaber. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So Rick, we're going to dive in the deep end here and uh, start with a question. I, I really associate with you with the first time I came to understand some of these nonlinearities in risk. And with the phrase, the volatility paradox, you were the first person to explain that to me. Can you explain that to listeners? Sure. The the volatility paradox is that the time that volatility in the market is low, so you would think risk is low, you know, things aren't bouncing around a lot. Risk actually is high and growing, but it's growing under the covers. And the reason for it is when there's low risk, people are emboldened. They'll take more leverage. They'll move more and more towards what don't appear to be, but really are risky assets. And they'll assume that the liquidity to get out of positions, which is really high when there's no risk, because who doesn't mind taking on somebody's position if there's no risk to do so? Uh, you know, that liquidity is not going to be there, there when suddenly people have to sell uh, if a bad event occurs. So, we've seen recently is a manifestation of uh, the liquidity paradox. 
Right. It's this idea that you assume the risk is low because you assume the recent past will continue. So I can get into a position knowing someone else is going to buy it at a higher price, or at least at the price I got it. But that's actually the time when the risk is highest because these paradigms can change quickly. What do we know about those paradigm shifts between these low volatility and high volatility environments? Well, it's kind of like you said that if you are looking through the rearview mirror, uh, you're going to get it wrong, you know, because you'll see low volatility. The risks that occur that really matter, you know, these sort of uh, big shocks to the market, uh, whether it's a recession or people being forced to liquidate, like we've seen with technology stocks recently, they really come through two things. One, obviously, is there's some sort of event that occurs, but the other is that the market is vulnerable so that when an event occurs, it can't absorb that. It starts to drop. And uh, it's not like you can't figure it out to some extent. You know, if there's high concentration in the market, if there's a lot of leverage, uh, those sorts of things suggest that you're in a vulnerable state, even if right now there's not a lot of... uh, movement and volatility in the market. You know, we're living through a pretty big market correction right now. And it feels like every time these happen, you shift between these two perspectives. One perspective is, well, of course, you know, markets go up, markets go down. And the other perspective is, gosh, who could have seen this coming? From your experience in markets, it seems like your roles have always been to say, hey, guys, a bad thing could happen, a bad thing could happen. But it does seem like every time it does happen, we wrestle with this question of who could have seen it coming and it was obvious in retrospect. How do you square those two perspectives? It's funny because after the event, it's kind of like you can explain what happened in a few sentences. And, and it's hard for me to believe that people couldn't see, for example, the prospects for the bubble, if you want to call it a bubble, in the FANG stocks, you know, in the big tech stocks bursting. People should have been able to see inflation coming for quite a while. And you kind of know what inflation is going to do, certainly what it'll do for nominal interest rates. And you know what other things are affected if rates go up. So it is kind of weird that people get so caught up and they always find some excuse for why things are totally out of control. You know, during the dot-com bubble, Uh, When price earnings ratios were through the roof, people said, oh, you know, old accounting methods don't work anymore. We've moved away from brick and water to, uh, you know, this uh, new world. You know, recently, the argument people have had when I said, you know, these price earnings ratios are crazy is, no, no, with rates really low, you discount 20 years out with a lot lower discount rate. So it matters much more. And so when you sum all those up, the present value of earnings is higher. You know, first of all, nobody cares about earnings 20 years out. I mean, really, you know, in theory, I guess you do if you're in finance 101, but. I thought efficient markets meant that the market weighed and and knew what earnings were going to be 20 years out. Well, that's right. And so if you, if you stay in your finance 101 class, you're good. Um, Yeah. But, but, you know, so. So I guess to your point, um, why don't people, let, let's not say why do people not see it coming, fine. If you don't want to say, I don't think it will happen, fine. 
But why would you not understand that this is a risk that can occur? This is a place where you were you know, pretty prescient. I was uh, going back and listening to some of the things you said publicly in the last two years. And, and you made this point, which is tech is in the limelight. But even if you thought you were in a diversified S&P 500 index fund, you actually were overweight tech because of the way market cap weighted index funds work is that something like 25% of the, or, or more was exposed to to FANG stocks or, or to tech more generally. And yet that was where the market was. And so knowing that it's a risk or knowing that it's a vulnerability is different than knowing how to position yourself against that risk. Yeah, that's right. And people, um, people generally think, hey, if I'm in the S&P, if I'm in a broadly, if I'm in the index, if I'm in, quote, the market, I'm good. Right. That's got to right. be well diversified. But if a subset of the market's been going up and up and up, if you are owning the market uh, and those stocks are a high percentage cap weighted of it, you, you basically are concentrated. And uh, you know the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 make up about 25% of the total market cap. Uh, and so, and technology stocks, it's not just... You underestimate it even if you say, oh, here's my exposure to the technology sector. Uh, if you look at, you know, sort of stocks are defined as being in the technology sector, it's about 25 to 30 percent of the market cap of the S&P. But really, if you look at technology more broadly, it's about 40 percent because like Amazon isn't a tech stock, but it has cloud computing. And right. so people are way out over their skis in exposure to technology, even if they think they're holding the market. Yeah. And it does seem like, you know, our, this is a fintech podcast. And so if we think about tech generally, we can also sell, tell that same story with fintech specifically, right? Fintech stocks were some of the hottest stocks over the last two years. There were a lot of IPOs. And then fintech, uh, certainly the ones that have IPO'd, uh, have been some of the hardest hit. Um, so. One of the, the questions that I have when I think about this is this, is this just a story changing where we think of these things as, oh, these are the, these are the companies that are going to define the future and therefore we should pay more to be owning them now. Um, and then that story comes off or is it a simpler story like what you said about the discount rates? And what do you think, based on your experience, Rick, in terms of how much this is a narrative shift versus simple math? I think it's a shift in the narrative or a waking up from a dream. This happens all the, not all the time, but it's like we see it all the time, right? The dot-com is the poster child for it, but it's happened even before that. Uh, so people have irrational exuberance. And it's exuberance and it's irrational. And uh, finally, when things come back to earth, you know, they sort of say, gee, that was sort of crazy. Why did I think that company, you know, was worth what people said it was worth? But that said, there are companies that survive. There are good ideas. Uh, it's not all noise. Uh, but the more 
uh, signal there is, the greater the noise that it carries along with it. Uh, so you have this strange thing in markets that you don't find in other areas where uh, there's feedback from signal into noise. So more and more of what you see in the market doesn't make sense, but you can't notice, or it's hard to notice it doesn't make sense because it might be looked at in the context of some stocks that reasonably should be highly valued. This idea that um, because markets in particular are self-referential, that if there is a strong signal, that strong signal will, I I think you're saying, will attract more noise, which just makes it all that more difficult. Can you give some examples to to bring that to light? I mean, I think it's such an interesting concept that signal creates noise, but does it work the other way? Or is it just that like, you know, good companies attract competitors or or followers and and then people try to tell that story? Well, if it's, Successful companies draw in competitors. That's sort of a feedback of signal to signal. If the competitors yeah, okay. are, you know, reasonable. Um, the I the best example I have of uh, signal versus noise in financial markets, and I go into this early on in my book, A Demon of Our Own Design, which came out right before the 2008 crisis. I, I posed the question really, what's wrong with financial engineering? You know, in all other areas, engineering makes things better, reduces risk, makes things safer. In the financial markets, financial engineering creates more complexity, makes things what I call more tightly coupled. So if there's one problem, it propagates out before you can control it to others and basically makes the markets riskier. Uh, The innovations that we get in the market, I would put them in quotes. Uh, The innovations we get actually are things that make the markets typically riskier. Um, And the reason is that the way you make money in the market is to add complexity, which only you understand and sort of kind of throws dust in the eyes of everybody else or allows you to act faster than other people do, which creates more tight coupling. So when something happens, it just moves from the next thing to the next before people can take over. You know, so there, the engineering itself by design is creating noise that adds risk to the market because people can hide under that noise to make money. Yeah, I think this this concept of engineering to create tight coupling, you know, and in, 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 in software engineering, you think of tight coupling as something, especially in modern software engineering, you try to avoid, right? Because it it creates dependencies that can ripple Mm. out and cause problems in your code. And I think that makes it a good analogy for what you're talking about in financial markets, because as financial markets become more tightly coupled, it increases the risk of propagation from, you know, a bad event in one market or in one country or or a a change in in story for for one company. Uh, it increases the likelihood that that spreads through another market and another market. Yeah. And uh, and the mechanism for the spread uh, often is because of leverage. Um, essentially, if there's a shock, if people are highly leveraged, they have to cover their positions very quickly. They get margin calls. And that happens intraday or within a day or so. 
not everybody can wake up, so to speak, to what's going on so quickly. You know, if you're a, a portfolio manager, it's not like when somebody's screaming for liquidity because they have to sell, you're at the switch. You know, you've got other things to do. And the very fact that they're screaming uh, for liquidity because they're hitting this margin call probably means you're going to step over to the sideline, uh, which mm-hmm. of course makes them have to try to sell more. Prices drop. When the prices drop even more, more people move to the sideline because they can't figure out what's going on. Now, if everything were slowed down so that the portfolio managers who might be ready to buy could kind of think intelligently about what's going on, uh, it could be a different issue. But uh, the way the markets are set up, uh, you have this, what I call time disintermediation between uh, people who suddenly need to sell and the people on the other side who might be willing to buy. So that's kind of, in my mind, the archetype of how how tight coupling can lead to ongoing cascades and, and contagion. Because if you can't sell in the market that's under stress, and typically you can't if you're a hedge fund and you've got to come up with money somehow to meet margin, then you'll sell whatever you can. And so some other market now gets hit because you happen to also be in that market. And there's no reason those two markets are even related to each other. Right. They just happen to be in your portfolio. Yeah. But it, it meant that our conversations you know, often have this sort of generational dynamic, right, of the older generation. And as it turns out, Rick, as you know, you know you're know, you about the same age as my parents and, and you've got ch- children that are about my age. But this notion of how do you take the lessons of one market, one market environment, and then translate them to the next, vi- next market environment? Because there's always enough different to sort of make the claim that like, well, you know, the lessons from the 80s, they don't really matter for the 2000s or, 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 or whatever it is, whatever claim you want to make. And yet it does feel like these cycles are, are pretty consistent. So how do you abstract away and try to communicate out to that, that intergenerational dynamic about, uh, you know, what can go wrong? (laughs) Well, you know, it's sort of funny because now I'm one of those guys who says, well, Remember back in 87 when we had, you know, and of course, then everybody under 40 sort of rolls their eyes and says, geez. Right. When, when, when I was riding my bike to the swim club. But you need to have history. When people get an MBA at Harvard, uh, I was never wild about Harvard MBAs because they don't take all these econometric courses and stuff. But what they do get is, you know, years and years of proxy experience by going through all sorts of case studies. So they kind of know how the world works in different cases, in different ways. And uh, we don't have anything like that. If you're getting a, a PhD or a master in financial engineering or whatever, nobody goes through the history of crises. And in fact, if I advocate this to anybody who's sort of in a PhD program, they're going to think, boy, you know, he's like, he's lost touch with reality. And no, I've actually in reality and the academic sphere has sort of lost touch with reality. But in any case, um, one thing that I learned when I was at Bridgewater, I worked with Ray Dalio there. And I think people who know Ray know that he really respects history. Uh, When I was there and we're at the start of the 2008 crisis, he had the research team looking at other cases like the Weimar Republic. And I thought, you got to be kidding. 
Like you're going to look at the, we have all this stuff going on. You're going to look at the Weimar Republic. Well, you know, so, but one thing I did learn from him is that you need to have respect for an understanding of history and an exercise I did, which I feel like anybody who's in the market should do. And if you're under 40, all the more so because you've seen fewer things, although actually you have seen two of the monster things, uh, right. 2000 and 2008, uh, maybe not so much 2000, but depending on, on your age. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly over 40. So we'll, we'll, we'll get, I was, I was in college in, in 2001, but, uh, but I, I felt it right. Cause my mm-hmm. classmates all around me were dropping out to start radio on the internet or blank on the internet, uh, companies. Yeah. And <laughs> let's just say that they finished their degrees later. Yeah. So, um, so what you can do is you go to uh, Yahoo finance, you pull up the S and P 500, and you go back starting in, say, 1937, because, you know, get in, you've got to get past the Depression because that's just crazy. Uh, and the market right. was in a dynamic there that I don't think could repeat in that way. And you look at every time that there is a big downturn and you can decide what big means, you know, down 15 percent or something. This is a subjective exercise. Yep. Then for each of these cases, and I've counted, I've done this, and there's about 40 some odd cases, figure out what happened. You know, what is it that led to this drop? And sometimes the drop is actually multiple drops. In 1970, it wasn't one drop. Actually, in 2000, it wasn't one drop. It was dot-com, S&P revaluation, and Enron-type fraud. Boom, boom, boom. But anyway, mm-hmm. you go through all those, and... And then you can sort of say, I'm seeing something occur now that's sort of leverage induced. And that happened with LTCM and that happened this time, that happened in uh, 87. And now you sort of are in the real world because here's the thing that, you know, we only have so many markets. We only have so many institutions. There's a Goldman Sachs and there's a Morgan Stanley, there's the S&P and there's you know, the uh, MSCI ACWI. If you're in academics, you're trying to generate very abstract models that sort of are expected to work as well on Mars as on Earth. Like this is, assume there is a representative agent. Well, we don't need a representative agent. We know, you know, who we are. Um, So this exercise helps you sort of root yourself more into the nature of the world as it is. It's a great exercise because every one of those drops, when you look at it on a chart, it's just line goes up, line goes down. But if you were living it, it didn't feel abstract at all. It would have been fully imbued with all the nuance of politics and who won the last election, what's going on in fashion and culture in the Cold War. So, uh, Rick, as we wrap up here, one of the points that I want to have you talk about is the difference between material risks, things that really matter, versus just day-to-day market risks. So share with the listeners, how should they be thinking about material risks versus just following news in the markets every day? So most of what people measure when they're looking at risk is this background radiation hum, because that's usually what's going on. Um, But for most people, that doesn't matter. Uh, If you're a hedge fund, it matters. If you're a bank that has to manage a Trading blotter, it matters because your time frame is days or weeks. But if you're an individual who's got possibly decades 
before they really have to worry about living off of their savings. Um, you know, the stuff you read in the news really is just noise. You could shut it all off and not have any difference in uh, the relevant decision-making. In fact, you'd probably be better off. In fact, there's certain events that occur that look pretty apocalyptic <laughs> if you are a hedge fund, but don't matter if you're uh, longer term. Um, so th the key idea of material risk is to focus on those sorts of risks, uh, to know what to ignore and to know what matters. And if you're an individual rather than an institution, what matters to you is a very small subset of what seems to matter in the world generally. Rick, it's really great to have you and to help us focus on the things that really are material. Your wisdom is hard won over many years, and I appreciate your willingness to share it out. So thank you again for coming by. Well, thank you. It's great to see you again. A conversation with Rick always covers a lot of ground, from the technicalities of the volatility paradox to an 85-year view of the S&P 500. I can share that I had a whole nother page of questions that we didn't get to today, including questions about Jurassic Park, climate change, and chaos theory. Those will have to wait for another time, I guess, though, as I say that, maybe that would have been an even more fun interview. For those who work on financial innovation, Rick's conversation reminded me of a long-standing difficulty that is a central theme of this show. It's hard for innovators and regulators to be able to engage in productive conversation. Rick offered the provocative idea that financial engineering functions differently than other types of engineering, that it intends to increase risk by connecting different types of financial markets and by increasing leverage and opacity. As Rick explained through the analogy of tight coupling, financial engineering can connect risks in unrelated markets through leverage, margin calls, and the simple fact that portfolio managers tend to sell safer assets in liquid markets before they crystallize losses in higher risk and less liquid markets. Finally, how should we interpret Rick's insight that strong signals attract noise, that even when we have correctly identified a source of value creation, that very fact makes managing risk more difficult? And this lesson ends where I began with Rick, the volatility paradox. There's a profound lesson that periods of low volatility, where markets are running up, are actually the periods where vulnerabilities are greatest. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. -M -M -E We'd love to hear from you.